Isaiah 40, verses 9 to 31. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and he rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him, and he recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket, or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord, or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him, and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge, or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they were fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals burnt enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. With whom, then, will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded? He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth, and its people are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of his world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground than he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint.
Let's pray. Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, Isaiah tells us, you tell us through Isaiah, that the best news that we can hear is the message, behold your God, here is your God. Lord, we pray that as we reflect this morning on that, on you, the God who is there, that you would help us to behold you, to see you, to know you, to come to you, to be your children. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. Every year uh, about this time, we spend a few weeks uh, thinking about what the Bible has to say about a particular topic. So rather than working through a particular passage of the Bible, uh, we'll often be anchored in one uh, passage like we will this morning in Isaiah 40, but we'll also be looking around at a number of other passages. Are there, did, did the handout go out with a number of other Bible passages? Did that, is that right? You've got that? So we'll kind of be jumping around through some of those uh, as well. Uh, and this year we're thinking, the topic that we're thinking about over the next few weeks is, uh, who is God? Who is the God that we meet in the Bible? What can we know about him? What is he like? Uh, knowing God, you see, is the most important thing that we can ever do. As Isaiah says, uh, it's the best news that we can ever hear. Here is your God. Knowing God uh, is not an arbitrary or an irrelevant thing. We want to know God because he is there. Uh, we want to know God because God made us. We want to know God because he is God. Uh, we want to know God because God wants us to know him. We want to know God because knowing God helps us to love God and to relate to God and to enjoy God. The better we know someone, the better able we are to love them. A Christian author by the name of Francis Schaeffer once wrote a book titled The God Who Is There. I've stolen that title for this sermon. But it's a great title because it latches on to an important truth. That is, we want to know... Not gods that we make up in our own minds. We want to know the God who is there. We want to know the God who can be known. We don't uh, want to know a God who can't be known uh, or a God that we might invent. We want to know the God who is really there as he really is. And so today and over the next six weeks, we're going to be looking at what the Bible has to tell us about God. Uh, Who he is, what he's like and what he does. And we'll be doing that so that we can know God and so that we can love God and so that we can live for God. Well, maybe the most basic assumption of the Bible then is that God simply is. God just is. The Bible begins with the words, in the beginning God. In the beginning, before anything else was made, God was just there. He just was. God is what we call self-existent. That is, he doesn't rely on anyone else to exist. Jesus says uh, about God in John that God has life in himself. That Jesus has life in himself. Uh, He depends on no one else or nothing else to exist. In the beginning, God simply was. He describes himself to Moses as I am. That's the name that best describes him. I am. I just am, says God. God just is, and everything else, everything else that we see and even everything else that we don't see was made, and it was made by God. So Paul writes in Colossians of how God the Father created everything that is, 
through God the Son. So Paul writes, The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Everything, whether we can see it or not, was made by God. And Jesus is the firstborn over all creation. That doesn't mean that he was the first to be created. Rather, it's, it's about inheritance. He's the firstborn son. He's the one to whom it all belongs. He's the one who inherits it all. Everything that is belongs to Jesus because God made everything through his glorious son. And we see too in Isaiah 40, that passage that we read, that God describes himself there too as the maker of everything and describes himself as the ruler over everything. So look at verse 25. To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all these things? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. God's not just another part of the creation. He's not simply another thing that was made, that came into existence. God just is. He existed before everything else, and everything else that we see, hear, and touch was made by God. Uh, One idea that some people have of God is that, uh, unlike that picture of God that we see in Isaiah, one idea that people have of God is that God is in everything. Uh, That idea is called pantheism. You might have heard of that term before. Pantheism just means God in everything. Uh, It's a bit like the force in Star Wars. You know, the force is part of everything. It moves through everything. uh, And everything is connected by the force. Uh, If you like, in that view, everything is part of the one divine reality. So that's the idea that kind of undergirds Hinduism. Everything in the world is part of the one divine reality. Uh, In pantheism, everything is a little bit God. The chair is a little bit God, your cat is a little bit God, and even you are a little bit uh, of the divine reality. But the God who is there, the God that we meet in the Bible, is not like that. God says in Isaiah 40, not that he is part of everything, but that he made everything. He's distinct from everything. In fact, no one else compares to him. Nothing is like him. No one is equal to him. He's separate. He's exalted above the highest heavens. He doesn't need anything from us or from our world. Now, instead, God says that people are like grasshoppers to him. That's like, that is, they're like insects. And he brings the great and the powerful rulers of the world to nothing. Just like that. But if one error is to see God as part of everything, another kind of opposite error is to see God as totally distant and disconnected from the world. Uh, That wrong view of God has been called deism. So in deism, God made the world but then left the world to kind of run on its own. The classic illustration is of the watchmaker uh, who makes a watch. So he makes the watch with all the parts that are needed to work and then he winds it up and he lets it go. And the watch just sits on its own, apart from the watchmaker running away, doing its own thing, uh, working as it was designed to work. So in deism, God is the maker of the world, but having made the world, he has nothing to do with the world. 
In that view of God, God is for all intents and purposes irrelevant to our daily life. It doesn't really matter that he made the world. It's a nice thing to know, but it doesn't affect your life. But again, the God that we meet in the Bible is not like that. So look at verse 27. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. God says to the people, he's not ignorant of what's going on in their lives. We might think to ourselves, God has no idea what's going on in my life. God has no idea what I'm facing, what I'm going through. But God says that's not true. God is not separated from the world, is not ignorant of what's going on. God knows everything and is involved in everything. He's exalted above the highest heavens, but intimately concerned with the events of our lives. And not only is God not ignorant of our lives and circumstances, he's intimately involved in them. So look at verse 29. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. This isn't the God who's separated from the world, is ignorant of our circumstances, nor is it a God who knows what's going on but, see, but never intervenes. This is a God who knows what's going on, who's intimately concerned with our lives, and who comes to us, who helps us, who aids us in our strife. He lifts us up when we're weak. He comforts us when we're afflicted. He enables us to run and not grow weary, to walk and not be faint. The Bible is full of accounts of God intervening in the world. He hasn't left the world to run its course, but he's guiding and shepherding everything to his appointed purpose. And the most obvious example of God's intimate love and care for the world is the incarnation that is jesus the god the son being born into our world in jesus god entered into the daily grind of our world to rescue people and god did that because he loves and cares for this world the god of the bible the god who is there is both high and lifted up far above everything in control of everything but he's also intimately involved in our lives and in the events of his world. But second then, the God who is there is not simply a God, but the God. He is the only God. So if you flick a few chapters further on in Isaiah to chapter 45 and to verse 18. I think this is on the sheet as well. Uh, to Isaiah 45 verse 18, halfway through. I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in the land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together and come, assemble you fugitives from the nations, ignorant of those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be, present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a saviour, there is none but me. What God is saying is that he is 
God alone. I am the Lord and there is no other. There's no other God apart from him. There's no other saviour. There's no other righteous God. There's no one else. That idea lies at the heart of the first of the Ten Commandments. You shall have no other gods before me. There is no other God. But the problem is that as human beings, we seem to be incurably drawn to putting other things in the place of God. In Isaiah 45, God talks about people making idols of wood. And people would pray to those bits of timber as if those bits of wood could save them. Or people would bow down to those bits of wood and venerate them as gods when they're nothing more than inanimate objects, powerless. Now, you and I might not be so foolish to pray down to pray to and to bow down to bits of timber, but we can easily install other things in the place of God. We find things that we think will save us and we put our trust in them. You might put your trust, uh, you might put your money in the place of God by trusting in your money to keep you safe and secure when life goes goes wrong you think to yourself well i'll be okay in the future no matter what happens because i've got this stockpile of money in the bank i've got those shares the business is doing well no matter what happens we'll be safe and secure nothing can touch me i was watching this week uh some documentaries on uh, nazi germany or the lead up in the lead up to the second world war and and actually there were periods where, of, of time where things were going well where the economies in in parts of europe and and america were looking good and then there was a massive stock market crash and the whole world was plunged into into chaos the line between normality security and insecurity and and great evil is is such a fine line it could happen today it could happen tomorrow But we so easily put our trust in those things, like our money, the things we own. You might put other people in the place of God by trusting in those people to keep you safe and secure rather than trusting in God. You might put your trust in your insurance policies by trusting that if anything goes wrong, you'll be kept safe. But God says there's no other God besides him, there's no other saviour, there's no other rescuer. And not only is there no other saviour, there's no other God to whom we owe our allegiance. So Isaiah 45, 22, Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. What's that word? Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame, but all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, eventually, that God is God and there is no other. Everyone will confess that God is God, whether willingly or unwillingly. That day will come. Because God is God. And we owe no one else the allegiance that we owe to him. And part of the very definition of what it means to be God is that we owe him our allegiance. We owe him everything. But so often we give our allegiance to other things 
We find things that we worship and which we give our lives to. We sacrifice ourselves to those things and we sacrifice others to those things as well. You might put your dreams and your aspirations in the place of God by sacrificing everything and shaping your whole life around the pursuit of your dream. And you might even cherish your dream so much that you sacrifice the lives of the people around you. You walk all over them, tread all over them to get what it is that you most desire and you most cherish. Your dream to be successful or beautiful, to have the perfect career or the perfect life or the perfect marriage or the perfect family or the perfect holiday or the perfect house. You might put other people in the place of God by sacrificing everything to please them, to satisfy them. But no one else deserves our allegiance and nothing else deserves our worship except God alone. God is God and there is no God but him. But maybe the greatest competitor for the position of God is us though. We see that in Isaiah chapter 40 in verses 12 and 14. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in the balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counsellor? Who did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? God's point is, Who of you can claim to do what I've done? Who can compete with God's power? Have you or I ever measured the water in the sea? You know, kind of put it all in a jug and and, and measured how much there was there? Or have you or I measured the expanse of the universe? Astronomers have been doing, trying to do things like that for centuries. Still have no idea. They don't even know what shape the universe is let alone how big it is. Have you or I put the mountains on our kitchen scales to see how much they weighed? Or counted the grains of sand on the beach? Not Not even every beach, just one beach. Who of us have ever done that? It's just impossible, isn't it? It's ridiculous. Or who of us has such insight into the world that we could give God advice on what to do? You know, God, I've got a great idea of what we could do in Europe. I've got a great idea for how we can solve the poverty in Africa. If you can find time in your schedule, let's have a chat. We'll sit down and have a chat. Who of us has ever helped God out with a maths problem or a scientific equation? None of us. And yet how preposterous it is that we think every day that we can solve the world's problems, solve our own life problems, control our own lives. It's madness. Sheer madness. We keep putting ourselves in the place of God. We keep trusting in our own power than God's, rather than God's power. We keep taking our own advice rather than God's advice. Why don't we pray? If not because we don't think that we need God. Why do we sin? 
if not because we think that our ways are better than God's ways? Why do we despair, if not because we think that the future depends on us rather than on God? We so easily try to assume for ourselves the prerogatives of God, the privileges of God, even when we know that it's stupid to do so. And that was the great sin of Adam and Eve. They thought that they could be like God. And because of that, they plunged the rest of us into that same misery that every day we keep trying to be like God. But God is God and there is no one like him. And that, by definition, is what it means for God to be God. God is. He's the God who is there. He made everything. He rules everything. He's separate from everything, yet intimately involved in everything. He alone is God. He alone rules, and we don't. But not only that, another fundamental characteristic of God is that he is who he is, not who we want him to be. You see, uh, not only do we try and replace God with other things, with ourselves, we also try to remake and remodel God into some other image. So we can see that in verse 18 of Isaiah 40. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metalworker casts it and goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver and chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. Here in these verses, the issue is not replacing God with another God, but it's, the issue is people looking for some image to which they can compare God. They think that God is like an idol overlaid with gold. They think that by making this idol, it will help them to understand God better. And in the history of God's people, we see that kind of attitude over and over again. The most famous example maybe is after God had rescued the people from slavery in Egypt. He brought them out in the Exodus. And in response, the people had gathered up all the gold that they owned and they'd put it into a fire and they turned it into a golden calf. And when they'd done that, Aaron, one of their religious leaders, said to the people, here's the God who brought you up out of Egypt. That golden calf, that inanimate golden calf that's not moving, that's not doing anything except sparkling in the sun, that's the God that brought you out of Egypt. He didn't say, here is another God to add to your collection of gods. He said, here is your God. In other words, this is what he's like. This is what he looks like. Worship him. Aaron wanted the people to think that the golden calf told the people what God was like, who he was, how they could know him, but it was a lie, it was a fabrication. God is not an inanimate metal object. How profoundly stupid to think that. It was a foolish attempt to make God more accessible, but actually it robbed people of the true God who is there. And while you and I may not be melting down our jewelry to remake God, we still can fall into that trap of remaking God in our minds, how we want him to be rather than how he really is. You might make a God who is all love without judgment, or a God who wants us to have our best life now rather than a God who calls us to take up our cross and to follow Jesus. 
You make make a God who leaves us as we are in our sin. He's happy for us to go on with our lives as they are, rather than a God who forgives us for not being what we should be, and a God who remakes us into the image of the Lord Jesus Christ. I had a conversation with someone recently, a friend, who kept telling me what they thought God was like. Uh, They thought that God was a she, uh, or at least could be. Um, They thought that like in deism, that God had made the world and then pretty much had just left the world to run. Uh, And actually, we were kind of in control of the world, rather than God. But at the end of the day, the only reason that... uh, they thought that God was like that was because that's what they decided for themselves that God should be like. They'd sat down in their philosopher's chair and they'd said to themselves, if God is God, what would, there's a God, what will he be like? Well, I think this is what God will be like. If I was God, this is what I would be like. But the God who is there is not a God that we can invent. He is the God who is there. We don't get to decide what he's like. We don't get to make him up. We don't get to refashion him in our own image. The only thing we can do is come to know the God who is there as he reveals himself. And God has revealed himself to us in the Bible. In the Bible, God shows us who he is, what he's like. And so we don't need to invent who he is. He's already told us. We need the Bible to know and understand God and we need the Bible so that we can know and understand Jesus because it's in Jesus most of all that we really know and meet God. So John writes at the beginning of his biography of Jesus' life, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We've seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God But the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Jesus has come to make God known. The God that you and I have never seen, Jesus has made him known. The writer of Hebrews says, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. The sun is the radiance of God's glory in the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful words. God has spoken to us in Jesus, the exact, exact representation of his being. But not only does Jesus reveal God to us so that we can know about God, more importantly, Jesus reveals God to us so that we can know God so that we can relate to God, so that we can have a relationship with God. Jesus said to his disciples in John 14, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them and we will come to them and make our home with them. If you really want to know God, not just know about God, not just know important facts about God, if you really want to know God, You need to know Jesus and to meet Jesus. And if you meet Jesus, 
Jesus will make himself and his Father known to you. They will come to you through the Holy Spirit and they will make their home with you. The God who is there will no longer be a stranger, but a constant companion and friend. That's a profound idea, isn't it? It's a profound idea. That the God who is there, exalted above the highest heavens, the God who is there, the God who made the universe, is a God who comes to us and meets us, who calls us his children in Jesus Christ, and is willing to call us his friend. I think of my friend pontificating, thinking hard about what he thinks God is like. And I think about what Jesus offers here, not imaginations about what God might be, but a relationship with the God who is really there. Do you want to know the God who is there? Then dig into the Bible and find out who God shows himself to be. Dig into the Bible and find out who Jesus is. Meet Jesus in the pages of the Bible, and meeting Jesus, come to him and entrust yourself to him. And don't just know about God, but know him as a father, know Christ as a brother, and know the Spirit as a counselor and a friend. Or do you want to know, do you already know God, but you want to know him more? Then the prescription is the same dig into the bible and find out who god reveals himself to me to be come to know him more and more dig into the bible and discover more and more about who jesus is meet jesus in the pages of the bible and meeting jesus grow in knowing god and in loving god and enjoying god and living for god let's pray Dear Lord and Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are there and that you are God. And as Isaiah said, we can look to the heavens, we can see the creation and we can see your handiwork. Though we may not see you, we can see your fingerprints all over our world and all over our lives. And thank you, Lord, that you have not left us without witness, that you have not made the world then not told us anything about you, but that you have sent person after person, prophet after prophet, to reveal who you are and what you're like so that we might know you. But most of all, Lord, you have sent your own son, Jesus Christ, to come into our world to make you known to us. And not only known to us in terms of facts and figures and ideas, but make you known to us as our Father. And He is our brother, and your Holy Spirit is our counsellor. Lord, we pray that you would help each one of us to meet Jesus and to know you through Him. And Lord, for those of us who do know you through Christ, we pray that every day would be a day of deepening in our relationship uh, with you through him. And Lord, we pray for the weeks ahead as we dig more and more into who you are uh, as God. We pray that you would open our minds to understand you, to know you, and to love you with all our hearts. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen.